we left off um, midstream. I was uh, following a bunch of rabbit trails about um, the Lord telling us that we could pray and that he would move mountains uh, for us, that if, if we would trust him, I cautioned us against the health, wealth, and prosperity mindset that, you know, you can't just go out and ask for a brand new sports car. It needs to be that what we're asking for is within God's will, and then he will grant it to us. So um, we are going to pick up at Mark chapter 11, verse 25. In regard to that, he says, and whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. That's a pretty heavy-duty verse. Uh, there are a number of other occasions where the same thing is said in slightly different ways, or Jesus you know, in teaching us how to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, you know, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. You know, and then Jesus even caps the end of that by saying, if you will not be forgiving, neither will you be forgiven. That's a, that's a really serious thing, uh, that, that we should be forgiving and gracious people. You know, recently as we were studying and Peter and he gives such an adamant uh, position and stance and statement about, you know, your message, your gospel, your preaching, your faith must exude grace. You know, and I likened it to it's the, the necessary ingredient. You know, the grace of God has to be there. And so very often um, what we uh, do is we're, we're legalistic and we're harsh and we're unforgiving. Um, you know, it's it's amazing uh, how when we first come to the Lord, we're just so overjoyed at his acceptance of us and, you know, all the things that he's doing. And, you know, give us a few years and, you know, we get kind of jaded. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll tell everyone around us that it's, it's maturity. <laughs> you know, and what it is is we're being judgmental. Uh, grace. The Lord is so gracious with us, constantly forgiving. It is his characteristic. When he says, you be holy, for I am holy. Uh, we've talked about how that's if we're his children, then we're going to have his characteristics. We're going to be reflective of his personality. And so it is uh, with forgiveness. He, he is the God of forgiveness. You know, I, I always bring up Jonah, you know, he, he did not want to go to Nineveh. The, the, the people of Nineveh were especially cruel, murderous, torturous, uh, and very, very uh, uh, hateful towards the nation of Israel and had done horrible things to them. So the Lord comes to Jonah and says, I, I want you to go and tell them to repent so that they won't be destroyed. And Jonah says, not happening, and gets on a boat, goes the other direction. And, uh, you know, if we're familiar with the account, great storm, you know, draw lots, falls on him. He's the bad guy, tells the captain, the storm is because of me, you got to throw me overboard. They throw him overboard, swallowed by a great fish, you know, swim uh, to the shores of Nineveh. A fish spits him up. Um, interesting sideline note, uh, the people of Nineveh worshipped the fish god. You know, Dagon. So their God spits out a prophet who is saying, You got 40 days and God's going to kill you all. And so they repent. And when they repent, Jonah is livid because he wanted to see them destroyed. And he says, I didn't come here because I knew you were a gracious and forgiving God. He knew God's character, right? Many preachers today 
that preach that the God of the Old Testament is filled with wrath and hate and all this, they don't know the, the character of God as well as Jonah did. A man who lived in rebellion to him. I'm not going to Nineveh. Why? You'll forgive him. He doesn't want them to be forgiven. Right? God even brings it up. Look, there's 180,000 people in that city that are so young or so simple, they don't even know their left hand from their right hand, and you want me to wipe them all out? The graciousness of God has always been present. It is his character. He is kind. He is forgiving. He is long-suffering always. I'm the same yesterday, today, forever. Keep that in mind because that same God who would judge in the Old Testament will also judge in the New Testament. Okay? Gracious and kind, yes. Forgiving, benevolent. But he's also God, right? And he is sovereign and he is the judge of all. So we must be forgiving. We must show and represent and and pour out the character of our Heavenly Father and be ready to forgive. 27, then they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple... The chief priests, the scribes, the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, before we move on, right, uh, the big thing that they're wound up about, it, it's twofold. It's certainly the fact that he went into the temple and flipped over the tables and drove out the ox and set the doves free and disturbed their whole scam that they had going on. They were definitely upset about that. But he'd also allowed the people of Jerusalem to worship him as he came into Jerusalem and was declared the Messiah. And they raised protest there about, you know, you got to stop these kids from declaring Hosanna and son of David. This is wrong. They're saying it's blasphemous and it should be put to an end. And he makes the statement, you know, if they were not worshiping the rocks themselves, would cry out at my coming here in this moment. Uh, so they want to know, hey, well, you know, yeah, it's the whole picture. It's the whole three years. But it's more to do with you're upsetting our apple cart. You, you are, you're, you're turning our religion upside down. And you, you certainly went into the temple and disrupted you know, our money-making scheme. So by what authority do you do these things? Now, uh, you know, clever people learn how to answer questions with questions. Okay. Yeah. It, 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 it's a tactic. It works pretty well. Um, politicians are very good at it. Or they just answer you. Politicians just answer you with nonsense that has nothing to do with what you just asked them. Okay, Jesus here is doing something that is very common, especially in his day, amongst the Jewish rabbis. The debates go this way, where, let me ask you a question, and they'll listen very patiently and get done. They won't even answer it all. They'll say, well, let me ask you a question. You know, pertaining to what you just said the whole time, they've either already got it formulated or they're quick on their feet and they formulate it as the question is being asked, and they turn it right back around on them. In other words, to say, your question's stupid. I don't you know, that whole idea that there are no stupid questions, there are stupid questions. You know, that, that is a thing that... Anyway. So they ask him this question, by what authority do you do these things? And really what they're asking is, they're daring him to claim that it's God's authority is what they're doing. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Try to say that what you did was by the authority of God. They've got their preloaded, you know, response ready to rock and roll. And so by what authority do you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Okay. He is saying to them, my authority is the same as John's authority. 
So when John the Baptist came and rebuked you guys and called you a brood of venomous snakes and warned you to flee from the coming wrath of God and to repent and bring forth fruits of repentance. When John was in your face doing all of that, uh, by what authority was John doing it? Because John was the precursor to me. So what are you going to say about John the Baptist? You want to get to me? You can get to me. Let's talk about John because it's we're on the same wagon here. This is the same train. John's car just arrived before mine did. So whose authority are we talking about here? Then they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? Oh, listen. There's a confession there that they don't believe him. They don't believe John, and thereby they don't believe Jesus. That in their discussion, right, because the authority is one and the same, if you believe John, then you believe me. If you don't believe John, then you don't believe me, which means you don't believe God, right? You know, the conflict between Moses and Miriam and Aaron, and then later the conflict between Moses and Korah, and all that rebelled with him, both times Moses says, you're not coming against me. You're coming against God. You're upset with God. God gave you these things, put you in these positions, and you are upset with God. It's not me. It isn't a problem of personality. What's going on here is you've got a spiritual problem between you and God, and that's what Jesus is confronting them with right now. You don't agree with John the Baptist because you don't agree with God, which is why you don't agree with me. And it's all one and the same picture. Uh, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, it's an earthly thing. They feared the people for all counted John to be a prophet indeed, meaning truly without question, John was a prophet. Notice how the wording is that they, as the religious organization, don't agree with the people that John is a prophet. All, you know, they counted that all the people believed that John was a prophet. They haven't thrown in with that at all. They, they are completely opposed to this. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You, you, you don't know? You don't know who John's authority was. Okay, well, then never mind. We don't even have to talk about it. Oh, there's a powerful lesson there about just dismissing people that want to argue. Right? There's, there's, there's no fruit in it. And you diminish your own credibility in the process. <clears throat> I've done a lot of street ministry in years past, uh, talked to big crowds, individuals, you know, had massive confrontations with people, and I learned very quickly on to just dismiss the people that want to argue. To, to, to not even say anything, say, no, I'm not going to talk to you. But I've got questions. No, you really don't. You want to argue, and I'm not here to argue. I'm here to talk to the people who have serious questions that they want answered. I'll stay and I'll talk all day with those people, and I have done it. I have spent 8, 10, 12 hours at a time and just in public just preach and talk and share and pour over the questions. You know, Have you ever talked so long that you lose your voice? And you've got a headache and your lips are completely chapped and fried. And you just, you know, it takes you a day to recover. But with the people that want to receive, how many times do we hear, right? Jesus saying in the book of Revelation, for him who has ears to hear, right? Let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. For him who has ears to hear. For him who has ears to hear. You don't have ears to hear? Move on. What I've noticed in those crowds is here's the loudmouth 
right? Who's asking stupid questions. You know, God can do anything. Well, then, you know, can he create a rock so big that he couldn't lift it? You know, it just, you know, it's just, you know, you just, that's a stupid question. Get out of the way, man. You know what I'm saying? So, so no, no question is stupid. Like, who raised you? You know, I just, you never had a mom that smacked you enough or something. I don't know. There are stupid questions. Get out of the way. Why? Because there's probably somebody standing right behind them who's very timid, who has a sincere question that needs you to talk with them. And the loud mouth is going to consume the air. And nobody's going to get to talk. Jesus just dismisses them. Take the example from Jesus Christ. Just dismiss them. No, I'm not going to talk about it. No, I'm not going to argue about it. Not into it. Will not do it. You know, it's, it's much more fruitful to just move on. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Uh, the Jews that are listening all understand this scenario uh, on every level. They understand it on a physical level of farming and what they see in their environment. They understand it on an emotional level. Maybe they've never experienced it, but the people around them have, and they have either suffered the consequences or been uh, receiving of the reward that comes from this. And spiritually, God has been using this illustration for millennia with the nation of Israel. And we'll get to what Isaiah has to say and what Psalm has to say about these things. But the hearers in here, this is, you know, this is like a really old pair of shoes that they just slip right into very easy. As soon as Jesus begins describing this, they understand. And that's why any of you that have studied this, you get the violent reaction on the other end. That's why they know exactly what he is saying. It's a parable, right? Taking a known element and laying it down parallel to an unknown element so that you gain the understanding of the unknown element. Uh, but these people know. As he lays this out, they understand. The tower was commonly built in the vineyard. Sometimes they were very tall. Other times it was just like a hut on a hill. Okay, uh, A lot of cost we're talking about here. And this commonly went on in the literal sense where a landowner would you know, uh, invest a massive amount of money in clearing all the rocks away, lining the vineyard, dressing the vines, building the tower, because the tower allows it to be that when you get close to harvest, they would actually move into the tower. You know, At least servants would live in the tower because they can see the entire vineyard from that position. And people would steal from the vineyards, and also the animals would come in. When, you know, the closer you get to harvest, the more likely you're going to lose your crop. You've got to pay close attention to everything that's going on with uh, you know, your money and, and what's going to come from this. So this one builds all of this, prepares the wine press, has everything in place, and leases it to vine dressers. Very, very, very common in the day for wealthy landowners to do this. Invest massive amounts of money in it and then split it so that the uh, landowner receives two-thirds and those that worked in the fields receive one-third. If, if that sounds imbalanced, the landowner is doing all of the front-end investment. Nobody gets anything if the landowner doesn't do this. And... The one-third is an incredible paycheck, okay? So, so when payday comes, everybody should be happy with this scenario. So in the process of lending it out, leasing it out, now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. Now, this isn't even the idea of, 
he's showing up and saying, okay, pay up, two-thirds. He's just saying we're nearing vintage time, and the owner of the field would like to receive fruit from the field. And, I mean, that's you know a given that the, the, the landowner can ask at any time for fruitfulness from that which belongs to him. So, you know, he, he goes into this far country, and then he sends uh, a servant to the vine dressers, and uh, he wants fruit from the vineyard. They took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully. And again, he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them last, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him. They feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So that they, let, they left him and went away. They would have killed him there on the spot if, if they had the opportunity. But again, they are man-pleasers. They're all about the opinions of men. They, they aren't looking to please God ever. They don't, they don't have you know, a moral compass that is set on God's integrity, God's law, God's word. It's all from the flesh. As much as they look religious, they are completely of the flesh, incredibly evil. We want to be very cautious about people that function like that around yourself. It's, they're very, very dangerous. People that have you know, a great appearance of being religious in any way, and uh, yet they're not full of the Holy Spirit then they are completely functioning according to the flesh, and everything about their spirituality is deception. So here, these are very dangerous. Why don't we back up to Isaiah, just uh, go to the left um, uh, a little bit. Uh, you know, in my Bible, it's page, uh, where are we? Page um, 787 is where we want to be. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 5. <clears throat> 787 or 581. Those are the two numbers we've got so far. Y'all bingo. I don't know. I just. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 5 is where you are headed, beginning at verse 1. Now let me sing to my well beloved a song. Of my beloved regarding his vineyard. So, this has a great deal, and what we're going to read in Psalm has a great deal to do with why these Jews have a perfect understanding of what Jesus was saying. My well beloved has a vineyard and on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up, cleared out its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the midst. He also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Now, you know, that's not like a pleasant thing. You're not, you're not like, we used to have wild strawberries. You know, those are always nice, you know, in the yard. Find them around, pick every last one you can find. Not the same thing at all, right? 
terrible, bitter, disgusting, right? I mean, you wouldn't want them on your property, wild grapes. This is all cultivated. He's planted choice vine. Everything was supposed to be good and fruitful, bountiful and pleasant. Wild grapes, terrible. You, know, you literally almost think of it as like sabotage. Like how in the world could this have gone wrong? I did everything I possibly could in the process. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard, that more what more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that the rain not rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So there's no question. They have studied this for, uh, you know, more than 700 years. They have studied this and they know exactly what is being said by Jesus. He's quoting directly from Isaiah. He quotes from uh, Psalm also. So this is just cutting deep into them as he's saying those things. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. The men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. They're completely evil. And Jesus knows their hearts and he's confronting them in it. Why don't we turn over to Psalm chapter 80. Psalm chapter 80. So go further to the left, just a couple of books. Again, page 675 in my Bible, probably not even remotely close. I don't know why I'm telling you page numbers. <clears throat> some of the some of the guys in CRD always do that to me. What page? You know, I what page? I don't even have page numbers on my notes. So, but Psalm 80 uh, similar thing, uh, look at verse 7 to begin with. Psalm 80, verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts, cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. You have brought a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. Now, this has two um, fulfillments um, that... Uh, run because Jesus was in Egypt and came out of Egypt and was fruitful to the Lord, whereas the nation of Israel was in captivity in Egypt and brought out of that captivity and planted in Israel. And so some of the things that are said here, you prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root and it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow and mighty cedars with its boughs. She sent out her boughs to the sea and her branches to the river. Why, excuse me, have you broken down her hedges so that all who pass by the way pluck her fruit? The boar out of the woods uproots it. The wild beast of the field devours it. Return, we beseech you, O God of hosts. Look down from the heavens and see and visit this vine and the vineyard which your right hand has planted and the branch you have made strong for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. That would obviously be Jesus upon the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn back from you. Revive us, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Cause your face to shine, and we shall be saved. So you have, uh, very often, you have repeated fulfillments of prophecy. 
you know, sometimes, you know, people make the great mistake of thinking like this one occasion in history, that was the fulfillment and we all need to stop discussing any future fulfillments. Well, uh, certainly uh, you have uh, in this case, you have the nation of Israel, which departs from worshiping God and falls into idolatry. And then it's taken into captivity, 586 BC and taken away to Babylon. And they beg for the Lord's restoration and return. And their city in their country is overgrown and bramble. And, you know, you think about Ezra and Zerubbabel and Nehemiah coming back and doing their survey and looking at things and being so overwhelmed with how destroyed everything is. And, and the Lord, you know, saying, not by you know, strength, not by might, but by my uh, power, you know, by my spirit, saith the Lord Zerubbabel will say these mountains be moved. He's talking about the mountains of rubble inside the city for the reconstruction of uh, the the city of Jerusalem. So so here you have that fulfillment where uh, Israel uh, fell into sin and was taken away in captivity and then ultimately restored uh, back to it. Um, you know, there's reflection of Jesus in it. You know, referring to the Son of Man, referring. Uh, uh, to uh, the the one seated at his right hand, uh, he was cut off, you know, in his death, and yet restored and, and brought back to life. Uh, move uh, forward again, Israel, end of World War II, nineteen forty-eight. They're brought back into the land and made a nation again. They're restored. And, and, and in case you were wondering, you need to read uh, some of Mark Twain's journal about his. Uh, travels through Israel and how absolutely desolate it was. He talked about how the ground was rich and fertile for planting, but it had been just left and laid waste. Uh, there was no attention given to it. So it was, it was a wilderness and a wasteland when he was there. He said he'd traveled for 24 hours and seen nothing but rock and goat. <laughs> you know, no, no, no fellow human being anywhere. That's, that's remarkable. Uh, to consider the, the change, right? Third largest producer of food in the world now. Israel, smaller than Rhode Island, right? Russia and America, Israel, right? Holland, the land of flowers. The nation of Israel has converted two 747s to cargo jets and they fill two 747s a day and fly them to Holland full of flowers. The land of flowers gets a massive amount of their flowers from Israel. Uh, you know, the fruitfulness that the Lord has created, you know, each time they repent and God does a restoration, uh, there is a fruitfulness in that. So, you know, the, the destruction spoken of by Isaiah, by uh, the psalmist, by Jesus is right in front of them. 70 AD, uh, you know, Titus is going to come. He's going to, you know, sack Israel, besiege uh, Jerusalem. And uh, the according to uh, Josephus, the dead are going to flow out over the wall like a river when the final wave of invasion comes. Just destruction beyond your wildest imagination. And, uh, you know, really um, a tortured um, landscape for, you know, the next almost 2,000 years as it was unoccupied uh, there. So back in uh, Mark uh, chapter 11, as uh, G or we're actually in 12, aren't we? Uh, that closing statement, the stone that the builder builders uh, rejected has become the chief cornerstone and was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, um, most of us have heard uh, the sermons and the explanations about the fact that uh, the capstone, uh, apparently there was this um, uh, actual event where uh, they quarried all of the stone for the temple off-site, cut all the stones, transported them there, there was a nomenclature uh, on all of them, and they just fitted them according to the blueprints into place. Uh, when it came time for the capstone, uh, 
they sent to the quarry and said, we're going to need that now. We're about to finish. And the message came back. And it's difficult to verify all of this, but the message came back apparently. And they said, oh, we actually sent that in like some of the first loads that came there long ago. And uh, so they do a big search and they end up finding uh, the capstone uh, that had been literally thrown down over a hillside and then it had become overgrown and they have to cut it out of the weeds and they have to you know transport it back up and they put it in place. Um, certainly that has its application, uh, whether that's legend or literal, uh, Jesus was rejected and uh, he is the capstone. But there's a play on words uh, here also in that the capstone has become the cornerstone. Okay. Uh, the cornerstone in this setting was extremely precise. Um, if, if you're thinking like ancient builders were uh, crude and, uh, you know, not as refined as what we have today, um, there is a stone that is in the retaining wall that we sometimes refer to now as the wailing wall uh, in Israel, uh, that is a retaining wall for the temple mound where the temple was built on top of it. There is a stone there that is more than a hundred ton moved into place. And the bottom of it is cut so that it exactly fits on the bedrock that was already there. So at the quarry, they shaped that stone so that when they brought it into place and set it down, you can't put a piece of paper in it. It's set perfectly. Cornerstones were very large, and they took exacting detail in manufacturing them and then setting them in place because then you could have everyone else that did work and building on the project measure from that position. Every other thing gets measured out from there. That, you know, if you're working in a room and the other side, you got to know where the wall, where does the wall fall? You can literally go to the cornerstone and run your measurements off from that and know exactly where you're going to be. There, there's a very strong spiritual message in that, that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. So much of our society, it, we're comparing ourselves amongst ourselves. We're not looking back at, you know, you know well, okay, um, you know, yeah, I'm you know, sleeping with my girlfriend, but we're married at heart. And, you know, I, I mean, after all, that's not, I mean, have you seen what they're doing? You know, <laughs> well, right. Maybe what they're doing over there is worse than what you're doing in a human standard. But we're not measuring off from their bad measurement. Right. We're measuring off the perfect cornerstone. We're not going to sit around and debate. Have, you know, how, I know there's a few guys in here that have worked on construction sites where guys are trying to eyeball stuff, you know, frame up a wall, stick it, looks good. I don't know. Just like, let's get a level, you know, let's actually, let's like hang a plumb bob and, and actually determine uh, what is right rather than us sit around and debate. And, and that's what a lot of people do. You know, I don't, I don't like this in the Bible. I don't think that that should have been. I mean, Paul was just being cultural. That was for that time and that day. You know, it, it doesn't really apply today. Yeah, no, it doesn't apply today because we're so screwed up that we're that far off the mark. We need to go back to the original measurement and draw the lines out to where they belong and understand where we should be standing. These men are about to murder Jesus Christ because they're comparing themselves amongst themselves. Everybody's fine with what everybody else is doing. If it doesn't bother you, it doesn't bother me. You know, I've, I've heard that thing uh, on construction sites where you can't see it from my house. You know, No, but someone's going to have to live in this house, you know? 
and, and if it's messed up, then you know the workmanship, what went into this, that's where it all went wrong. Our, our culture is doing this everywhere. Just you know, make up your own mind, measure your own uh, measurement, consider what's going on. It's, it's an absolute travesty. They sought to lay hands on him, feared the multitude. Uh, you know, Proverbs tells us that the fear of men is a snare. It's a trap. It's it will kill you. If we have the attitude of, oh, what are these people going to think? You, know, you might consider that for a moment, but in the end, it needs to be, what does the Lord think? What does the Lord want me to do? What is the Lord asking of me? If I will focus on that, then everything becomes very different in the processing. Continuing on in 13, we'll go just a little bit further. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. These guys never worked together. Pharisees and Herodians hated one another. They're trying to undermine one another all the time. It's opposition galore. Now, you know what I'm saying? They're having fellow business cards made up. You know, Herodian and Pharisees. Yeah. Uh, to catch him in his words. Then they came to him. They said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true. Oh, that's a load of junk. They don't believe that at all. Not even remotely, right? Uh, who's baptism? You know, John's baptism. What was up? Heaven or, you know, of men? No, we don't know. You know. But now we know you're true. You're awesome. We, we love your teaching. You're just a great guy. We know that you are true. This is such a lie. And care about no one. And that's the idea of we know that you're not affected by people's opinions is what they're saying. It isn't that you're heartless and don't care about people. They're saying we know that you, you aren't affected by people's opinions. For you do not re, uh, regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Um, it's always silly when we um, get in a debate with God and we we only give him an A or a B option. Uh, I, I know you've never done that. You can pray for me. And I always do that. Now, God, do you want me to do this or that? Because I've considered that a whole bunch. And now that I'm looking at this, I just, and, uh, you know, I do the pros and cons. And I really think that this, but maybe that. So, yeah. And then God says, well, have you considered this over here? You know, I didn't even know that existed. He, he has an entirely different approach. So they, you know, they come into this blindsiding themselves um, in, in the process. So they, they think they're so clever. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Now, the next verse, the next sentence, is actually critical doctrinally because you listen to certain health, wealth, and prosperity teachers and they will literally tell you Jesus was incredibly wealthy. Okay? And you say, wait a minute. Jesus said uh, to, uh, you know, the rich man that, you know, if you're going to follow me, uh, I don't know where I'm staying. You know, foxes have holes. Birds have nests. The Son of Man doesn't even know where he's going to lay his head. They flip that around and go, no, Jesus was talking about how the foxes have all kinds of places to stay and the birds have all kinds of places to stay. And Jesus had so many houses that he didn't know which one he was going to be staying in. Wow, that's, that's a stretch right there, you know, said the guy who's flying around the world in a private jet. He's just so stupid. So here he doesn't even have a coin in his pocket, right? He has to ask for a coin. Bring me a denarius that I may see it. <laughs> he doesn't even turn around to Judas, the treasurer of his ministry, and say, Judas, give me a denarius. He has to ask them, who has a denarius? Oh, thanks, and he takes it. No, he's going to set them on their ear. So they brought it, uh, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription 
is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. We've heard it so many times that sometimes we miss a large point within this. Okay, give me a denarius. Whose image is on this? Okay, go ahead and give that to God, or you know, to Caesar. But give to God the things of God. Why? Whose image is on this coin? Caesar. Whose image is on this? We were created in God's image. Our whole person belongs to him. You're whining about the coinage. You know, if if you're if you don't want to pay taxes, just you know, start printing your own money. Right? Ross Perot, anybody remember Ross Perot? Right? Ross Perot didn't want to pay tolls, so he built his own highway. If you're a billionaire, you can do such stuff. If, if you're, you know, so worried about, you know, do you trust God or not, right? Here's Jesus saying, pay your taxes. He even goes as far. There is a tax that is required of them later, which we'll talk about, uh, that goes to the temple, and it, it's a tax they've created. It has nothing. It doesn't come from the word. doesn't come from the law. They've created it. And the religious leaders are pressuring Peter about Jesus. And Jesus says, well, um, do you do us a favor. Go fishing with a line and a pole. And the first fish that you bring up, look at its mouth. And there'll be a gold coin there. And take that gold coin. Um, and it'll be enough to go pay your taxes and my taxes. And Peter catches a fish and there's a coin and he goes and pays the taxes. You gotta know that as Peter was headed out to the lake, that he's thinking, This is this can't be right. This is just not true. This is not gonna that's gonna happen. This is gonna ha this is not gonna happen. This is dumb. You know what I'm saying? And, and and then up comes the fish. I mean, imagine the foolish giddy dance, right? as he tripped out on the fact that he just hauled up a fish, just like Jesus said. I bet he ate that fish. You know what I'm saying? Just thanks for being the messenger and your dinner also. You know, I mean, is the Lord, do we trust the Lord is the question, right? Because when we are all jacked up about these things, then then we're, we're trusting in ourselves, we're trusting in our own reasoning, we're actually trusting in the money, more than we are God. Who is your provider? If you're not completely dialed in on it, it is God. Right? It's not that job. You know how I know? Because you've lost that job before. And God was still there. And look, here you sit. God provided for you. He provided for us. Trust him. Trust him is what he's saying. These, you know, this whole trickery that's going on, that's clever. We can laugh. We can look at it and go, great. But there's a huge lesson in it for us of how God will sustain us. And we need not worry. Well, do you know what they're doing with our money? You pay taxes and they're doing this and they're doing that. And the conspiracies run wild. And yeah, well, uh, have you ever studied what Rome was doing with their money? And Jesus said, pay their taxes. An incredibly wicked organization. And Jesus didn't say anything to the contrary. I always point out the fact that Jesus did not tell Roman soldiers to quit their job. So interesting. They asked him outright, what should we do? And he said, no longer extort people with your power, with your influence, with your sword. And be content with your wages. They got ripped off. Roman soldiers got ripped off all the time. Rome literally wouldn't even send a notice. They just wouldn't send the pay. They sent the you know order through the government and made the decision of we're not going to pay them for another month. And when we do pay them, we're going to pay them in salt. Because <laughs> we have salt mines and we can harvest a lot of salt. So we'll send them salt. So they're waiting for the paycheck 
and they get salt. Now you could buy and sell and trade with salt, but now you've got to go do this massive exchange and barter and all this work to make the salt that you've received actually a value. And Jesus told them, be content with your wages and don't extort people. Um, I think that there's a lot of application for us in trusting the Lord and waiting upon him. So, yes, he's, he's catching them in their own trap, but there's a good lesson for us all. Render to God the things that are God. That's your whole life. That's your whole existence. And that's what we should be doing with ourselves. Um, you know, I, I say again, I really want to just put this reminder. I know we're at time, but I just want to put this reminder because very often people will say to me, I just wish, I wish I could go into the ministry, okay? Work full time for the Lord. Well, let me just tell you, you don't, okay? <clears throat> yeah, th there's a tremendous amount of freedom in being able to have a job and do the things you're doing. But here's the other aspect of it, right? we're never going to get all the people out there that need to hear this message in here. We're never going to get them in here. What the Lord said, what Paul said, what Peter said, the congregational meeting of the churches was for, was to equip the saints for the working of the ministry. You, you go out the door into all of those environments. And you are God's ministers. He's actually already got you on the payroll. That paycheck you're receiving from the, th the stuff you're doing, from the gas you're pumping, from the wrench you're turning, from the hammer you're swinging, you know, from the goat you're raising, to, to whatever it is that the Lord has you doing, he's providing for you. And he's putting you in those environments that they're never going to welcome me through the door. You know, my pastor would like to come here tomorrow and preach to you all like they're going to let me in the door. Right. Not going to happen. But they've let you in. You're there as a preacher by stealth. Open your mouth. Preach, share, invite, lead people to Christ. Why? Because you're created in the image of God. And since we're created in the image of God, render to God the things that are God's your whole life. Does that make sense to us all? Good. Praise God.